Welcome to Inside Groove, the only motorsports show where super modifieds are king, methanol is aromatic, and the drivers carry their balls in a bag. Inside Groove is powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Here's your host and fellow superholic, Tom Baker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Inside Groove Super Modified Podcast. My name is Tom Baker. I'm the host of the show, and this is episode 115. This, much like the last episode that we did of the Groove, is going to be a tribute show. Since the last show, we have lost two people that um, have meant a whole lot to Oswego Speedway in particular, but um, super modified racing and in one case, um, Northeast racing in general. And so sadly, um, I think for the first time ever, we are going to do back-to-back tribute shows. This particular show is going to pay tribute to Chuck Siprich. Charge and Charlie passed away. Of course, Chuck was, he was, my goodness, I don't even know where to begin to talk about Chuck Siprich, um, but we're going to do that in just a moment. Chuck was one of the best to ever sit in a super modified, in my opinion, um, and he did all of that in the 70s into the very early 80s. Um, but he was much more than a super modified driver. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we also lost Mike Murphy and Mike was not a racer. Mike was, um, a car owner and a crew member whose, um, knowledge about super modifieds and tires and all of that, um, just runs so deep. And, um, he was so influential in the careers of so many drivers in different ways over the course of uh, the time that he spent at the Oswego Speedway. And um, because I know that this show is going to run very long just in talking about Chuck Siprich and because we want to make sure we get what's in the number in uh, and because I want to have someone else who can help me with the Mike Murphy tribute to do it justice because um, I was away for so long in terms of being a regular at the track. And I, and I, I've known Mike a long time, but there are many, many others who know him better than me. So what we're going to do is we're going to work that tribute into an upcoming show. Camden proud will be back from Norway here in about a week. And so uh, Camden and I will, um, we'll do a season preview show, which will be a deep dive into the upcoming Oswego Speedway super modified season in Isma and all that. And we'll, um, we'll talk about Mike on that show as part of that show. So that will be upcoming here within the next, uh, couple of weeks prior to the start of the season. Um, and we've also got a bit of news that I'm going to just touch on tonight real quick. And then um, Larry Trenka will hopefully be joining me for our next show um, to kind of go deeper because Larry, Larry got bored and uh, (laughs) 
Larry bought another car um, to redo. So I want to touch on that here later in the show as well. Okay, so um, we're going to take a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a driver that certainly deserves to be on a Mount Rushmore of super modified racers. And that's Chuck Siprich. And um, I'll make my case for why I believe that the seminal moment of his entire super modified career was not a win. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back with more of the groove after this. Experience the age-old Irish hospitality at LaGroff's Pub and Grill, Oswego's premier local spot to grab a cold one and cheer on your favorite sports teams. Stop in for a nice cold beer alongside some exceptional pub fare. Burgers, wings, chicken sandwiches, Philly cheesesteaks, soups, and more. You want it, they've got it, served up with more than 40 years of awesome customer service. Have a friendly game of darts against players from across the world. That's right, players from across the world. Where else in Oswego can you go to play darts against somebody from across the world? That's crazy. Watch the games on their eight big screen TVs or just relax at Oswego's Neighborhood Bar and Grill. The Groff's Pub, 187 East 10th Street in Oswego. Check them out on LaGroff's.com. Welcome back to the Inside Groove. I'm Tom Baker. It is great to have you back with us. Uh, We will be back to more frequent Groove shows here now that we're getting uh, into the month of May. This is just a glorious month, isn't it? I've talked about this before. Um, You know, this would be the month that you would call Racing Spring, right? Because... We just had the Kentucky Derby. And, of course, you know, the month of May is Indianapolis, right? For for almost any race fan, the month of May is sort of considered um, the, the, just the, the start of the season, even though, you know, NASCAR and IndyCar and, you know, a lot of series have started and been racing for, you know, a few months, right? But um, this month, there's just so much that goes on. And so um, looking forward to all that will be for the super modified set. And like I said, we'll be doing a season preview with Camden proud coming up here in the next couple of weeks and uh, kind of deep diving into all three super modified divisions and what we can expect. Um, I just think this season has the potential to be the best in many years uh, if everything plays out the way that it appears that it could, and we can kind of minimize damage and uh, mechanicals and all of that, um, should be a lot of fun, not just at Oswego, but uh, for the ISMA MSS combined tour as well. So that in future shows. Right now, what I want to talk about is I want to celebrate the racing career of a driver who I consider, when I think about Chuck Siprich, 
If I would describe Chuck in one word, that word would be badass. Chuck Siprich was a badass. Um, and, and I know that's probably an interesting word for some of you to hear me say about a man who was as laid back and sort of, uh, easy going and didn't talk a lot. Um, you know, wasn't a, a very gregarious personality, but you put that man in a race car and my goodness gracious, you know, it was, it was David Banner turning into the incredible Hulk. And I'm going to make my case for that because you, you look at Chuck, if you just look sort of superficially at Chuck Sipperich's super modified career. Yes, he won features and he won back-to-back classics. And you would say, well, that's the the highlight of his career. Those back-to-back classic wins. Well, that's an amazing accomplishment. And I don't want to diminish it. I just don't think that's who Chuck Sipperich was. I think that Chuck Siprich belongs on a, what I would, would call a mini Mount Rushmore. And I'm going to try to sort of lay out the case as we go forward here. Um, you could say, well, gosh, in a, in a type of racing where you've had Nolan Swift and Jimmy Champagne and Bentley Warren and Todd Gibson and Doug Haveron and Greg Furlong and Otto Siddeley and, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Okay. How does Chuck Siprich get on? Because Mount Rushmore is not unlimited, right? You can't have 50 drivers on a, on a Mount Rushmore. Well, it's because when I think about the era in which Chuck Siprich raced, we got to go back to the 1970s. And in that era, there was a type of driver or a, let's call it a, a lifestyle within the lifestyle that to me, there were three drivers in the Northeast and all of them from New York that, belong on a mini Mount Rushmore. And here's the category two surface racers. There were three drivers who could go to rolling wheels raceway and run a dirt car on Friday night and win come to a swiggo on Saturday and race a super modified and win, and then go to Weedsport on Sunday and get in a dirt car and win. And those three drivers were all just as equally adept at asphalt modified racing as well. And those drivers were Jimmy Champagne, Chuck Siprich, and Jimmy Winks. And to me, now they weren't the only ones who did the two surface thing. Uh, there were several other drivers in that era and even probably you know, into the, the eighties, um, you know, you had Jamie Moore, you had Mark Letcher, you had Bobby Stelter, 
Um, Sammy Carista came from the dirt to Oswego, but my gosh, the those three that I name, Champagne, Siprich, and Winks, were in a class by themselves in terms of what they were able to accomplish and their performances on both surfaces over a period of years, okay? Chuck Siprich was a badass. That is badass to me. In an era in which cars were crude, they didn't handle, you didn't have um, too many big money teams that just went out and, and could have these massive operations we see today on the dirt circuit or, you know, the kind of um, dollars that it takes to win in a super modified now in a Swiggo for the most part. There's obviously some who've won who don't have that. And that's not where I'm going with this. My point is, is that in that era, you really had to drive your ass off. Okay. And those three drivers were just magic when it comes to that sort of versatility. Okay. I believe, I know Jimmy Champagne won a rolling wheels track championship. And I think Chuck Siprich did too. At one point, I haven't been able to, to verify that, but I believe that Chuck also has at least one modified championship dirt car, modified championship under his belt um, to his credit. But he won a ton of races. So did Jimmy Champagne. So did Jim Winks. Now, and and again, it wasn't limited to rolling wheels of weed sport, you know, Fonda, wherever. But my point is, is what, what, what I remember about Chuck Siprich and to me, what made him great was his ability to get into a car and take it to a place that it it had never gone before. And you watch Chuck do that multiple times over his career. And to me, that's, that's what Chuck Siprich was winning two classics in a row is amazing, but he had a car capable of winning those two classics, right? He, he, the, the timing was just perfect. Now he beat Jimmy Champagne to win in 78 with, he, he passed him. I mean, you, Jimmy's the all time greatest ever at Oswego by the stats and nobody's ever going to get close. Okay. So, so the things Jimmy did at the Oswego Speedway and the Supers and the Asphalt Modifieds that, that nobody's ever, ever, ever going to get close. And Chuck passed that man. So that's kind of, you know, that's as, as high of a, you know, he passed him to win a classic. Now, you know, okay, maybe Jimmy's motor wasn't quite right or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Then the next year, he won it again. Okay, he, you know, he, he was there to take advantage when, the, the champagne rear engine car faltered and it was black flagged obviously and Chuck won. Um, so the, that's an amazing accomplishment, but to me, Chuck Siprich's ability to just flat out drive the wheels off a car and get more out of it than what anybody else had prior was what made Chuck so good. And he, he just seemed to be able to adapt to anything. And I'm going to make my case here in a minute. 
as to why I think the absolute seminal moment of his career was not a feature win. But let's talk about Chuck's super modified career first from the beginning. Chuck entered the Oswego Speedway story in 1973. He was already a well-known, very, very well-accomplished dirt modified racer. And he came to the Oswego Speedway driving for a car owner named Dick Dummigan. Dummigan had campaigned cars there for a few years prior to Chuck driving for him. And Dummigan's car was one of those, it was, Dummigan was one of those car owners where, again, it was a rotating seat. And that was yet another uh, bit of color to that era was that you had these car owners, and we're, we're going to talk about another one in a minute that Chuck drove for. Um, the, the, you had a few of these car owners that you never knew who was going to be in their car from one week to the next. And at least for me as a young fan, I found that to be very interesting. And um, Dummigan's car was not necessarily the fastest car. It seemed reliable. And uh, I think when I started Going in 73, I think Chuck was the first that I remember anyway. I think Chuck was the first driver I saw in it. Uh, There have been, like I said, several before him. And um, you look at, uh, I know that Bobby Stelter drove the car a time or two. Freddie Graves was in it. Norm McElth was in it. Joe Orso was in it. Um, Gosh, I'm missing. I'm sure I'm missing several. Uh, Mark Letcher probably drove it because I think Mark drove every car in the pits at one point other than maybe Jimmy's and Nolan's. Um, And Mark was another very underrated driver um, that uh, I would love to interview, honestly, for a show. And and I and and I think, you know, he would be a fascinating storyteller. Um, It might have to be R rated, but (laughs) so let's get back on topic, shall we? Chuck Siprich came in. Um kicking and screaming he didn't come in as i recall it he didn't come in and run in the back and look slow he came in and immediately was you know respectable and he qualified i looked this up because i wanted to um have some sort of statistical relation for his um classics because that's where again we intersect later right with the two big wins chuck qualified 19th fastest in 1973 for the classic in Dick Dummigan's car. And that um, he beat a ton of good drivers to, to do that. He timed in his first year. And again, perspective that was back when you were getting 50 plus cars for the classic. So that was remarkable to me that Chuck was able to, to do that. When I, when I went back and looked at that, I, I didn't go to that classic. So um, I wanted to, to, to look that up. Chuck just, again, it, he, you, you just could see, I think from what I can even read back about him, even back then, everybody realized that he had the talent you know, to, to be able to be successful in a super, that this was a, a driver who could be really, really good. So he ran this, whatever part of the 73 season that 
that he had with with Dummigan. And then the next year, he went over and started driving for Jack Tobin. And I believe back then it was Tobin Dietrich, and I don't remember Mr. Dietrich's first name. (laughs) So I apologize for that. But I believe it was Tobin Dietrich. And um, that was uh, a car that I think was an ex-Indy Roadster, I think. And um, I believe that the year before, that car was numbered 80 and Ronnie Madison was in it in 73. And uh, Ronnie did pretty good with it. And then he bought a car of his own for 74, which I think I remember being an old Bob Fry car. Uh, but I could be wrong. So that left the 21 open or the, or the Tobin car open and they renumbered it 21. I'm not sure why. Um, but, um, they obviously couldn't have it 80 cause that would be Ron's. So why they picked 21, I'm not sure, but anyway, they did. And Chuck Siprich got in it. And again, you know, didn't set the world on fire, but he certainly accomplished enough to make he and the team looked very respectable and they gelled well enough that Chuck, they decided to team up again for 1975. Again, Chuck qualified. I think if I remember right, I did not, I'm doing this out of my head. I think it was about 24th fastest. So again, timed into the classic beat a lot of good cars to do it. And, uh, ended up in a fire that year. If you'll remember, those of you who who were around then, that was my first classic. And I remember they had a huge fire. And um, I don't remember all the drivers that were in it, but I remember that there was a guy, I think his name was Butch Harris out of Texas. He had a a Bill Height built rear engine car, I think. And um, he ended up. It, there was him, there was, uh, Chuck was in it and I, and Chuck was in some way, Harris and Siprich were sort of like they tangled in the wreck. One, somebody hits one of them, hit the other, ended up, you know, against the other's car or whatever. And there were two or three more drivers, I think that were involved in that too. And, um, Harris's car caught fire. Pretty sure it was Butch's car that caught fire. I don't think anybody got hurt, but, and I'm not sure then if they had fuel bladders or not. I seem to recall that that might've come in maybe after that fire. I'm not sure, but so Chuck was, you know, we'll never know how it had finished because he was involved in that wreck. So in 75, when the 75 season started, uh, Chuck was not driving for Tobin because I don't know what they did with the car that they had in 74, 73, 74. I don't know where that went, but there was a new car that they were either buying or building or having built. I, I don't think they built it themselves. I think they either bought it or had it built, but it wasn't ready. So the first part of the 75 season, Chuck Siprich drove for Herm Graf in the C-15. Now here again, yet another bit of color that made the 70s so cool was that you had all these drivers with nicknames 
And even the cars had nicknames. Here I am, five, six, seven years old, and you know, I I was I was already a reader and you know, really into racing. And so I I say that because it informs my you my sort of the way that I would ingest all that and you know as more than just things i'm hearing on the pa right it it, it meant something to me like even back then and i didn't know there was one nickname for a car that is my all-time favorite car nickname and it should be a children's book character or it should be a character in the next cars movie you want to guess what it is chugaboom how many of you remember Chugaboom? Whose car was that? Bob Seelman out of Michigan had a car that was nicknamed Chugaboom. That is the all-time classic car nickname for me. And like I said, either that needs to be a children's book about racing or it needs to be a character in the next Cars movie. Maybe Jacob Seelman could voice it. That How appropriate would that be? <laughs> Chugaboom. Or it could just be its own movie, you know. Um, but that that's, to me, that that's awesome. Well, the C-15 that Herm Graf owned was called the Bounty Hunter. But it wasn't Herm's first car nickname either because the car previous to that was called the Otisco Bomb. I don't know who made up all these nicknames, but, like, I just, it, to me, that's part of what's missing in racing now. You don't have enough nicknames. You still got some announcers like Johnny Gibson from the World of Outlaws or uh, Ben Shelton was doing the late model portion of the Outlaws for a while in dirt. And, you know, he had a bunch of nicknames. I just think it it's a way of creating a character, right? And and uh, good grief. I mean, you know, if you if you're if you're a current NASCAR fan, we now have a bowl cut bandit in <laughs> In the Cup Series with Noah Gregson. Well, Chuck Siprich drove the, the Bounty Hunter. Now, again, I don't know what that nickname even means. But there's a story there somewhere, right? And that's part of it. You don't know what it means. And even the car, it wasn't just 15. It was C-15. What's the C for? But see again, that was part of the intrigue, right? The C-15. When I started going, Blake Carnahan in 73 was the driver. And uh, I don't know who was in it much in 74. There were probably, I'm guessing there was more than one that year. There often were in that car. And we'll get to that later. Well, in 75, Chuck Siprich starts off in this car. This car is definitely not a winning race car. This car, I don't believe it ever been... In it, it might have been in the top five because it started there. I don't think it had ever finished in the top five. I don't recall the car ever being a car that I would have thought, even as a five or six year old, was going to be in contention for a win. And then this badass gets in it. Now, here's where I make my case, folks. Okay, he he had a number of runs in the car that made you realize that he was pretty darn good. Okay, because you could see that he was getting as much out of that car as it had. However, I 
I put forth as evidence the week before the Grand Prix, which means it would probably have been the end of June 1975. And I'm looking at, as we speak, I pulled it out, the Grand Prix program of that year, which talks about, obviously, the race I'm referring to. Chuck Siprich started up toward the front. Now, I've got to sort of broaden this a bit and explain, because this race, in my opinion, should be considered one of the greatest finishes, most emotionally charged finishes in the history of the track. If you recall, 1975 was the year that Ronnie Wallace came out of his retirement, which he was short-lived because he retired the end of 74. Roscoe Town and Dick Rayner talked him into driving their newly numbered 76, which was previously the yellow 29, which was a Helinski chassis. It had never won a race, at least not a feature. And, and it started as the George Schofield owned 66 in 72 that, um, 1972 that Red Barnhart, Michael Osher drove. And then um, at some point, uh, Dick Rayner bought it and it became the 29, which Mark Letcher drove in 74. And I think Fred Graves, maybe. Um, And then in 1975, they repainted it and made it 76. Again, why? I'm not sure. Um, it, it became the spirit of 76 a year ahead of 1976. <laughs> Gorgeous looking car. Ronnie Wallace was one of the most popular drivers at the track who had never won a feature. That man had been trying for 20 years to win a race. He had driven for Howard Purdy and the Immortal Little Deuce. He had driven for Nolan Swift and the Ten Pins. He won some stuff with Swifty, but not at Oswego in a feature. He drove the Flying Five for Ed Bowley, which was an old Swift car. I think he probably drove for Bowley previous to um, probably a couple stints. He, he had driven for Steve Miller. He had driven for um, uh, Roy Murphy in the 13, that poor car. Uh, <laughs> he had... He had driven so many different cars. The, the Dummigan 90, in fact. The Warren Knowles 26. I mean, just on and on and on. Marty Cressetti's 11. I think that was his name, right, Marty? Um, Ronnie, everybody loved Ronnie. And everybody knew the talent he had. And he was another one that could drive the wheels off a of modified, too. I don't think he did too much dirt racing, but... Um, That night, the week before the Grand Prix that I'm referencing, Ronnie Wallace and Jimmy Champagne. Now, you could see this building up because right from the start of the 75 season, Ronnie was a contender in that car. And, you know, he would he had a bunch of top fives. He he was always fast. And so you just knew that that you could see that 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 was you know, but he'd been there before, right? He was there with Swifty's car, for example. In 1973, when I started going, he was driving Swifty's car, and he 
man, he'd be second, he'd be third or fourth or fifth. He was there. He just couldn't get over the hump and get a win. Um, and for whatever reason, Swift just figured the car should be winning. So, you know, thanks, Ronnie, but I think I'll come back now. And and so Ronnie goes over to the Flying Five, which was the Swift car from the previous couple of years, and, you know, couldn't get that, couldn't get a win in that either. So he gets into this car 76 and you could see it coming. And this was the night Ronnie, Ronnie was on fire, not literally, but figuratively, he just everything it, you, you could see it. And I remember this race really well, at least the, the last several laps of it, because he, he caught Jimmy champagne. Jimmy was going to win this race. Okay. And I'm going to read from this program, 1975 program, because again, um, I need for, I'm going to make a point here about Chuck Simprich's accomplishment in this race, but I have to preface it with what the big deal of the race was and what everybody was paying attention to. Okay. So here's, here's the thing. Um, Wallace began, and I'm, I'm halfway through the, the recap here. Wallace began making his move on lap 29, took over second from Chuck Siprich. And with a clear track ahead, he began closing in on Champagne. Lap after lap, Ron seemed to cut into Jimmy's advantage and was about 10 car lengths behind when a caution came out for Baldy Baker, who blew up the motor in the Hagen Howard Chevy car six. Now, this set the stage for the Champagne and Wallace finish, and folks, it was incredible. Okay, on the restart, Wallace stayed right there on Jimmy's back bumper, applying all sorts of pressure. At times, he would pull almost abreast with Champagne, but Jim kept his eight ball ahead. With two laps to go, sorry, my bad. On lap 43, the battle was interrupted when Merv Treichler hit the third turn wall with the egg closed car 69. Treichler was doing a fine job in the car for his first time out, was running in the top 10 before the wreck. He was not injured. Um, so, yes, this was a 45. With two laps to go, Champagne set the pace with Wallace right there. With the white flag waving, both Champagne and Wallace roared into turn one with Wallace taking to the outside. They ran down the backstretch and into turn three where Ronnie moved alongside the eight ball and coming off turn four, both drivers raced to the checkered flag with engines wide open. And it was Wallace to the line first with a Dick Rayner, Roscoe Town, car 76. Ronnie received a roaring approval from the capacity crowd for his heroics and was it was mobbed by well-wishers immediately following his victory. Remember when that used to happen? Jimmy Champagne took second with his eight ball and still remained the points leader. Now, of course, we all know that Ronnie ended up winning that championship. And this is the essence of where I'm going here. Everybody was so busy focusing on this incredible thing that was happening and, and the underdog David slewing Goliath with a rock, right? 
Ronnie Wallace finally getting that win in the battle with Jimmy to the end. It was the only time I ever saw my father who was a diehard Swift fan, but he and Ronnie were friends. Um, my father was jumping up and down after that. He was so happy for, for his friend. And I was happy for him too, because I knew that Ronnie was a man who worked, had worked so hard and had never gotten a win and, and understood, you know, the, the magnitude of this. Right. And so everybody was focused on that. You know, who finished third in that race? Chuck Siprich in the bounty hunter. <laughs> Chuck actually passed Sammy Carista in the, in, in the Corb 37 to take the lead on lap eight. And he started opening up an advantage. He's in this car 15, which hadn't even been close to a top five finish. And he, and it even says here, Siprich running the 15 like it never has been run before began opening a small wig over the rest of the field. But of course, on came three veterans to challenge in the likes of Nolan Swift 10, Jimmy Champagne 8, and Ronnie Wallace 76, three of the greatest ever sitting in the super modified at the Oswego Speedway. The first two are the guy who quote unquote built the track, right? The Oswego the, 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 the house that Swift built and the guy who totally remodeled it with Jimmy Champagne, right? And and they all caught him. Now notice I said Chuck got third, which means that the guy in the 10 pins didn't pass him. It took Ronnie Wallace 29 laps to pass that number 15. Now Jimmy had already passed him. It took Ronnie until lap 29 to pass the C-15 of Chuck Siprich in that race. And nobody else ever passed him in that race. Chuck Siprich finished third with a car that had no business, none whatsoever, being in third at the end of a 45-lap feature where most of the big names were still running. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is, to me, badass. Why do I say badass with Chuck Siprich? That's why. You don't take a car like that and go out and basically make life miserable for the greatest drivers to ever race at the Oswego Speedway or, and at that time, they were certainly now Swifty to had a rough start to the year, but the, the, he had gotten the car dialed in a little bit by then. I mean, it was an amazing race, and I think that was the greatest accomplishment of his career. And what's funny here is that I read Jim Ferlito's racing review in this program, and there's a really funny story here. Here's what he says. Chuck Siprich had himself one great racing weekend last week. Now, again, badass. Versatility. Dirt, asphalt, dirt, okay? I'm making my case here. Chuck Siprich had himself one great racing weekend last week. On Saturday night, he wheeled the famed Bounty Hunter Car 15 owned by Herm Graf into a most impressive third-place finish. It was the best finish ever in history for Herm's Car 15 at Oswego. I understand Hermie was so excited. Now you got, Hermie was not a young man either. Hermie was so excited with Chuck's tremendous performance in the feature 
that while the feature was running, he fell off the trailer a few times. <laughs> Can you just sort of picture Hermie? You know, you got the Benny Hill theme playing, right? There's a video, like, you make a video of the Benny Hill theme playing, and you, you do this sort of speed-up thing where he's sort of running on the trailer, boof, running on the trailer, boof, you know. Um, just, I'm sure that was hilarious. It sure was nice to see Herm's car finishing as well as it did because this guy is one loyal supermodified car owner. Getting back to Sipridge, Ferlito says in his column, his talents behind the wheel of a supermodified car are not limited as this versatile pilot drove the Andy Davidson Special Car 81 to a feature victory on Sunday night at Weedsport Speedway. It was another thrilling victory for Chuck as he outran Jack Johnson and... Jimmy Champagne at the line to record the popular win. My case rests, Your Honor, badass. Minnie Mount Rushmore, Jimmy Champagne, Chuck Siprich, Jimmy Winks. But wait, there's more. At the at, 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 later in that season, the twenty one's ready, the new car. And Chuck leaves the 15. I think George Ely replaced him. George was another dirt driver. And Chuck goes to drive this new 21. Now, <laughs> this is an aside, but again, I was a kid. And kids look at things differently, right? This car 21 came out, and I just looked at a picture of this. Um, I think it was in this in, in, in another 75 program, actually. Because I've been kind of going, i sort of been on a 75 kick lately. So, um, when I first saw this car, I remember thinking it looked narrow to me. And it had this sort of shape that reminded me of a cheese wedge. <laughs> the flying cheese wedge. Or a doorstop. Like it had, it had a, a, you know, a slope to it. Now... And I I also thought, and again, I'm sitting in the grandstand, right? So you see the car from a certain perspective. It goes by, and the back end was like it 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 was like somebody kicked the the back of the car in, and it had sort of this, you know, snowplow kind of effect going on back there. So I thought as a kid, like it just it looked funny to me. Looking at it now, I love it. It's a cool design, and, I, and, and I'm not trying to disparage. I'm just saying, explaining the kid's perspective, right? Chuck gets in this car and goes out, and I think he won some heats. Yeah, I don't think he, he, he didn't win a feature with it, but again, um, that was a nice-looking car, and Chuck drove the snap out of it. So the next year, he goes over and drives for Ron Buckner where he would remain for the rest of his career. Now, Buckner at the time had a car that he had built before the 75 season, and Bobby Stelter had driven for him since um, mid-73 or sometime in 73, and it had really good success, real good success in 73 and 74. They built this new car, and for whatever reason, the two of them just didn't hit it off anymore. I don't really know what all happened, but... But um, they didn't have the success. It was it was just different. So eventually, 
Um, they parted ways, and I believe that Ray Sand took over the car in 75 and ran it for the rest of the season. Um, and then I think he had, if I remember Ray's uh, success in it correctly, I think he had to actually qualify through the wacky races to get into the, to the, to the classic that year. Um, so 76 comes by and Chuck gets in the car. Now it wasn't immediate feature wins. In fact, I don't think he won anything until 77 feature wise. I think his first win for Buckner came in 77, but again, you could see that this, this team was going to be tough. And by the time we got to 77, Chuck had had time in the car. They probably rebuilt it, made some changes to suit Chuck. And he was really good in 77. Got a win, maybe two. I don't remember, but, um, again, wasn't it, 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 to this point, nothing about Chuck's career to Swiggo had been set the world on fire. He wasn't winning races, but you could see that this man was good. He got in Rex Kenny's car one week. And unfortunately I know that ended in a wreck um, that he didn't cause. He got in somebody else's pileup, um, maybe oil from a blown motor or something, but, but he, again, trying to sort it out for him, you know, and, and Chuck had that respect. He had already commanded the respect. And so at the end of 77, of course, Jimmy had brought out his radical offset in 76, but didn't actually race it in a feature until 77 was destroying the field in 77 because he basically had an Indy car racing against, you know, non Indy cars. But when it came to 78 over that winter, Kempton Dates built one, Freddie Graves built one, and Ron Buckner built one for Chuck. Well, that year, again, Chuck was tough. But remember that Jimmy won 13 races that season out of like, what, 17, I think. But he broke in every double point showing Warren Conium in the in, in the McKnight car. We'll talk about him later. Ends up winning the championship. Now, Siprich, I think, might have won a race or two. Um, but it wasn't as if even yet. OK, but you got him into the classic. And again, that's where Chuck, who had always run well in the longer races, because I think he was a more of a, I don't think he, they called him charging Charlie, but in the longer race, I think he understood how to do it. You know, you can't burn your stuff up early. Chuck ended up again, as, as, as we talked about earlier, he passed Jimmy on a restart, won that race in 78. And then in 79, won it again. Um, and by, you know, 78, 79, in, in 79 specifically, I remember that Chuck was probably Jimmy's fiercest rival that year. And um, you just knew, okay, but um, again, it wasn't so much about the flash as it was just, you again, badass, and he's winning dirt races the whole time. You get to 1980, the second offset Buckner car comes out. They sell the first one to Les Alexan. Jimmy's gone to sprint cars, not a regular. 
Chuck comes out and, um, you know, I, I, I feel like much of 1980 and 81 for Sipprich and Buckner was crashes and just bad luck. Chuck got hurt once. Um, I mean, it just, it didn't feel to me like the last couple of years of his super modified career were, he kind of, they didn't run. I think he might've run. Did he run in 82? I think he might've, I'm not sure, but again, it was, you know, you just, it, it, it looks by the stats, like somewhat diminishing, you know, skills. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, I would submit as my second example of Chuck Siprich's ability to get more out of a race car than what it had. A race, I believe this was 1979, but I'm not sure. It was a port city, and they had some sort of an issue with the 36. It was out. So Chuck ended up driving the Ron Gapsky number 51. Now, a little, just to jog your memory, that was the the last car that Nolan Swift built. He and Billy Wright. They ran it in 76, 7, and part of 78, and then Nolan moved the motor and never came back and sold the car to Jim Groves, who bought it for Gapsky to drive. Ron had crashed it a couple of times. It was definitely a lot of race car for Ron at that point, I think. But Ron certainly gave it all he had, right? Um, well, that car, you knew the car was capable. Swifty's last feature or last classic in it in 77, he went from 31st to 7th. If you remember, they, I think they lengthened the frame over the classic weekend. One of those last minute miracles again, lengthened the, the chassis and it came back on Sunday as a different car and Swifty won his two qualifying races to start 31st and drove up to seventh and i remember watching that there again i could still picture him on the outside just driving around people and so the the next thing i remember like i i can picture this because where we sat in the grandstand this was sort of right in front of us as you look at the pit area you know they were on like the grandstand side of the pit against the the wall there you know how how i'm talking about um they they um and and so the 51 ends up being backed into the area next to the 36 and i just remembered that um it was like frantic work like they were doing a lot of work on it and of course at the time i'm a you know i have no idea what's going on but I'm looking back, I'm sure they were changing shock springs, whatever, right? But they were trying to probably make it however Chuck wanted it. Chuck went out with that car, which certainly, except for Swift's classic run, hadn't, um, you know, done anything in the Swiggo to make anybody think it was a contender. He takes that car, and if you recall that race, he was fast enough to run in the top five. And again, it was one of those moments when it was like, oh my gosh, look at this. 
badass. There's still more. So Chuck ends his, his, the, 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 the Buckner 36 gets sold to Tommy Leeson. Again, I don't remember. Um, I want to say after the 82 season, if I'm not mistaken. And, but that wasn't Chuck's last super modified race. A lot of people probably think that the last time Chuck ran a super in a swigga was for Ron Buckner. That is not the case. I don't believe. Oh, actually, I think it is. Now that I'm thinking about this, I think, well, I don't know. I'm going to leave this as an I don't know, because, again, I'm trying to do this out of my head, and I don't recall the exact year this happened. But somewhere in the in the 80 to 82 period, I believe it might have been or I'll say 80 to 83 period came another my third and 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 final badass Chuck Siprich moment here. OK, um, if you recall, there was a period somewhere around 77 or 78 where they would have this big sprint car race at, at the fairgrounds, New York state fairgrounds on the dirt track on the mile. And they would, they, the, the first couple of years, there was, there was a point there where they were allowing super modifieds to race with them. Remember? And Bentley Warren ended up winning. I think in, so again, I'm just going to say maybe this was 78 ended up winning <laughs> that, that race. And, um, the sprint cars weren't running with wings. And so if you take the wings off the sprint cars, apparently now you have a, a, a race and the supers were better. I don't know all what went into that, but um, so there was all, there were always some supers that would go run that. Well, there was one year and I don't recall the exact year, but again, this needs just a touch of background. So Bentley Warren Back in 70, what, six, uh, Dave Snyder bought the Swift car from 73, four, and five. He bought that Swift car for Bentley, and that was the, they became the flying card table. Remember, they put the, the big tall cage with the roof. And um, so Bentley drove that for a few years. Um, 76, seven and eight. Now the, the Bentley book that's out wicked fast has, has a picture of Bentley just destroying that car into the first turn wall and saying that, that the car was killed at that point. And I, that picture may have been after the story I'm about to tell, but I'm not sure that it was. Um, I think the last time that car raced at a swiggle, and again, somebody can tell me different if, if I'm wrong, pipe in the pipe in the comments, but here's what I remember. One of one or two of the years that, that this sprint car race thing was happening where the supers would run and it may have been more than a couple of years. They started something called the Syracuse Swiggo challenge. And that basically was sort of a mini points fund, if you will, the best average finisher on the mile and at a swiggle that night would, you know, win some money, I think. 
whatever it was, and then probably a trophy. I don't know. But um, and that would that was kind of fun because you remember Jeff Swindell drove for Cliff Graves uh, one or two years at Oswego, Sammy's brother. Um, you know, you'd have guys doing both. And so I think you could, I don't know if it was just sprint cars. I, I seem to think that um, there was a dirt modified part of that Syracuse steel too, where you could even run that race and run a Swiggo and maybe you run all three or whatever. And I'm not sure if a Swiggo just ran supers that night or if they had the asphalt modifieds too. I don't remember. So they did a lot of that um, too. But um, what I remember is this. Bentley had his Graves car, Fred Graves built car that Freddie built in 78. That was that gorgeous Cam 2 car with the flames. Oh my gosh, I can stare at a picture of that car all day. Um, they, Bentley, um, Dave, Cindy Snyder bought it for Bentley and to run starting in 79. At one point, so Bentley had that, but here's what happened. There was a rumor during that season that Jim Cheney was going to drive the backup Bentley car, which was that old Swift car. That never happened. Here's what did happen. The night of the Syracuse Oswego Challenge, Chuck ran something at Syracuse. Don't remember what. Maybe the 36. Maybe it was something else. And then shows up in a swiggo with this driving for Bentley in this backup car. It had been painted blue. And it was numbered 79. Now, keep in mind, folks, by this point, a majority of the field or, or a good a good bit of the field had offset cars. Chuck comes back in this old Swift car that had been certainly well used, right? And left in snow banks over the winter. <laughs> left outside, covered with snow. Bentley wins a race in Florida. There's still water dripping off it um, from the snow melting. Uh, and Chuck ends up in the top five. This badass took that car and put it in the top five. Are you kidding me? Again, the guy was incredible. And all we've talked about so far is his super modified career. And we've alluded to the dirt. He was just as good in an asphalt modified. Now, I don't know that he ever really had the absolute top equipment in that division, but he sure made the most of what he had. Um, I remember him being, and again, this is not really a necessarily in order, but I remember him being in, in a Del Marion 21 car that I think was orange, which he was driving the 36 at the same time. Right. So that was appropriate. It was an orange and white car. Um, I remember him driving the egg close 69 when Jimmy, uh, got hurt, hurt his foot. He called Chuck to drive the car. I think it was at Pocono or Trenton or wherever the big, to, uh, what did they call the race of champions? I think that's what it was. And then he, uh, when Jimmy stopped driving it, I think they put, when Jimmy gave up the, the ride, they put Chuck in it for a while. And I think Chuck also had, was the first to drive this sort of next new close car that, that was built after the Hemi Colt. And um, 
and then Jerry Cook came on and and took it over and kind of went out from there. But Chuck, um, I probably remember Chuck most in the Dale Rivers 4D Gremlin. Remember the 4D? Um, that was a really cool car, and I remember Chuck driving it and doing really well with it. His last ever race at Oswego was actually in an asphalt modified. And it was, uh, I don't remember the year, but it was the modified 200 and it was very random. Like we hadn't seen Chuck for a little bit. Tom Forgione, who was a Western New York modified racer, and I'm sure probably a friend of Chuck's. I think Tom got, might've been injured or for whatever reason, couldn't race. So he asked Chuck if he wanted to run the 200. Chuck agreed, and he ended up seventh. That was, I believe, his final race at Oswego Speedway. And again, he I also remember him being in the, uh, remember the Turner Brothers 18, the car that was the convertible? You could take the top off and run it as a super, at least for 73 and 74, that's what they did. Um, and that car, I believe, is the only car in speedway history to ever have a top five finish in both the supers and the modifieds on the same day. Port city 74, I think. Um, I think he won the, the modified part. I think he got like fourth or fifth in the super. I think that I'm pretty sure that was 74. Um, so I remember Chuck driving that for whatever reason, the time or two as well. And there may have been others. Uh, I'm sure there were other modifieds he was in. I just don't recall them. But my point is, is that this this driver to me, it, there's there's a whole separate category for for Chuck and Jimmy Champagne and Jimmy Winks. I mean, Jimmy Champagne to me was the greatest driver to ever come out of the Northeast. I don't care who you put up uh, in terms of what do you I, and I'm not talking. I'm just talking short track. Okay, I'm not talking about you know, guys who went on to Grand National or Indy or whatever, NASCAR. Um, that's not what I mean. What Jimmy Champagne did in a super, a dirt modified, an asphalt modified, and a sprint car, to me, class by himself, he built a lot of those cars, all of his supers, He and he improved almost every car he was in, okay? Um Jimmy was to me just in a category of his own. However, in in the category of versatility, Jimmy Winks and Chuck Siprich are right there next to him and and there's nobody else. That's it. Done. Those three are the Mount Rushmore of two surface racers in my opinion. Um you know, when, when you, it, again, a Swiggo Speedway and dirt, right? Okay. Um, and that's what I'm going to remember most about Chuck Siprich. His classic wins back to back. Amazing. But that doesn't define him. He was so much more than just those two wins or, you know, whatever feature wins. And there's one last little bitty part of Chuck Siprich's racing career that we haven't talked about yet that we must. And we come back to his relationship with Ron Buckner. 
after they stopped racing supers, they tried IndyCar racing. If you can find a picture of the car, maybe somebody can post one in the groups, one of the groups for us to see. And remember, that car was beautiful. The shape of it, the color, that orange, you know, Buckner orange, beautiful race car. But they just didn't have the program to be competitive the way that that you wonder if Chuck Siprich could have. Even at that point in his career, you wonder if they had had a better program, what Chuck Siprich could have done in an IndyCar. But they tried. They got, they, they went there. Chuck Siprich ran at Daytona in a modified back when they had those big track modifieds back in the, the mid seventies, early mid seventies. Again, two and a half mile oval. Okay. Not, there wasn't some little track. It was the big Daytona track and Siprich is down there running modifieds. Badass. That's how I'm going to remember Chuck Siprich. He was a badass. He, he just could drive anything you put in front of him and get more out of it than what anybody else could. And he did it over and over and over again. And those moments that I laid out, I believe are why we have to consider Chuck a badass. He was certainly not a badass off the track, but as a driver, there aren't many. I will never forget Chuck Siprich. I pray for his family, obviously for strength and comfort. Um, it's again, he incredible, just absolutely incredible. By the way, uh, looking at this 75 program, I was I, going back and I don't, I'm sure I noticed this at the time. And again, you're a kid, Looking back now, it says outstanding. Remember, they used to do outstanding individual of the week. Well, it was two. Rob Wallace, Chuck Siprich, and the Herb Graf C-15. And I'm so thankful that, that whoever was kind of doing the program and making those decisions, they actually recognized the enormity and the magnitude of what Chuck accomplished because I would argue that that night, as amazing as it was that Ronnie won his first feature and his as as just incredibly happy as we all were for Ronnie Wallace in beating Jimmy Champagne to win his first race, I think the bigger accomplishment was Chuck Siprich bringing that C-15 home third. And I'm thankful that the track recognized that that should not be uh, overshadowed by Ronnie's accomplishment, so they shared the outstanding individual between the two of them. That was Chuck Siprich. Badass. We'll be back with a little bit of news and then we'll talk about what's in the number after this.
Okay, folks, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors here on Inside Groove, Indie Performance Composites. They're a premier composite design and manufacturing company creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Jeff West and his team are amazing. They do all kinds of work in the motorsports industry from dirt tracks to NASCAR to IndyCar, super modifieds. It doesn't matter if you've got something that you need designed or fabricated. Let them help you transform your idea, your vision and your budget into a workable, high performance solution. They have all kinds of services from 3D printing to finishing services, end-to-end composite solutions is what they are. Check them out, ipcindy.com or indieperformancecompositesinc.com and tell them that the folks from Inside Groove set you. Welcome back to The Groove. Hope you enjoyed that uh Walk down memory lane as we celebrate the career of Chuck Siprich. It just amazing. Um, and, you know, hate that we have to keep doing these tribute shows lately. It, 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 it's just, uh, it's sad, uh, to, to keep losing folks. Right. Um, so we're going to lighten the mood a little bit here. Uh, and again, we, we know if you haven't, some reason you join this in the middle um we're going to pay tribute to mike murphy on an upcoming show here in the next couple of weeks okay um so a little bit of news crossed crossed the desk so to speak um about uh, a week or probably been maybe it's been two weeks already um time goes so quick but um Larry Trinko, one of my closest friends and, and a super fan of this show and uh, all super modified racing, right? Um, <laughs> Larry's pregnant again. Um, <laughs> we're going to have him on our next show and, and go into detail about this. Larry, there's this whole sort of cottage... Uh, industry so to speak that's developed around restoring super modifieds over the last few years and it's amazing um and those of us old farts who you know saw these cars race we love it right because we recognize we're old enough to understand the importance of preserving history i've become a huge history buff of a lot of things not just race cars as i've gotten older and uh, but that's not for the show. Um, we'll we'll talk about we'll keep it racing. And Larry has he's got two cars that he's restored. Both of them are Steve Joya cars. He's got the car that that Steve debuted in 1975 that he won the '76 Classic with, and then he's got the uh, Baby Ruth car that was built in the earlier part of the '90s. Um, one of um the 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 neatest cars that i've that i remember from that period um love the shape of the car and you know steve had certainly had some some he had a couple good years in it um and but this time larry 
has kind of outdone himself. He he's uh, he's bought uh, he's bought an old dates chassis, and he's bought the some parts that were left over from another dates chassis of the same year. Um, and this is really an interesting thing. And and again, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here and it's not that I'm trying to tease you. Um, I mean, if you want to look it up, they're at least in one or two of the groups he's posted about it, but he'll tell us all the details. And, And it just, when he was talking to me about it on the phone, it just a, a really, this is really an amazing story. Um, that this was, um, this isn't something where he woke up one morning and just said, I need something to do. And, you know, happened to make a couple phone calls and do this, 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 there's a, there's a, a story over a number of years. Okay. That, uh, and a lot of sleuthing detective work, whatever you want to call it, research, um, fascinating. And I, and so, I want to have Larry on. He's going to be on our next show. And we're really going to deep dive into the whole sort of restoration thing. Not just his, but I mean, there's just so much to this. And this is going to end up probably going into one of our magazine editions. Um, I don't think I have time to get it into this one. That's um, this this one we're working on now that's coming out in June. I don't think I have time to get it in there, but we're going to I think we're going to we're going to put it in a in a later one. Um, this year because um, I really this stuff like this people are so fascinated by old cars now and so you know and I can't wait to see where Larry takes this particular story because he's got some options but we'll explain all that and 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 I I don't want to go into detail because I want him to tell us but um, and also because I want to talk about another restoration that I just saw some pictures of over this weekend. And honestly, it just sent chills up my spine. I mean, it, it gave me goosebumps. The Champagne booth 89 that has been restored by Jim and Scott Martell. And of course, Jim passed away, uh, last year, I believe now. Um, and, I, again, for me to try to do a tribute to Jim, I need, maybe there's somebody out there who somebody can direct me to who'd be willing. I've, I, I, I haven't, I tried to figure out how to reach Scott Martell on Facebook. I don't see him. Um, love to talk to Scotty or love to talk to somebody that really was, you know, was, was tight with Jim Martell or knows a lot of his story. Cause that would, that's another, uh, tribute that we should have, but the two of them have restored several cars, but this one obviously is iconic and it looks gorgeous. I mean, they did such a nice job. I don't know if there's a motor there. I don't know if it runs, but, um, but, um, I just, they're going to unveil it. Um, or they may already have by now. I think it was yesterday actually. Um, uh, but if not, it's sometime this month at uh, the museum up in New England, Northeast Racing Museum, I think. And um, just beautiful. I love all this. I love seeing these cars restored. Love seeing the history come back and be preserved. And uh, man, uh, Scotty, 
and anybody who had a hand in this, thank you. From all of us Super Modified fans, and especially those of us who were such just, Jimmy was my hero. And, you know, that, wow, that just took my breath away when I saw that. So um, that's a, a little bit of news about restoration. So we'll have Larry on next next show. Okay, um, man, I, again, this show is, is going to be way longer than usual, but we just, you, 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 ha- you can't just race through Chuck's story. There was just too much to it. So um, we're going to talk about what's in the number. We got two numbers. We've explained this before. If you're listening to a show for the first time, this is, we take, when I started this, it was episode 36. And I thought, well, you know, it'd be cool. What's in a number, um, you know, to talk about the significance of the number episode number in a Swiggle Speedway and Super Modified Racing. Well, that it, people seem to like it. And Robert Metcalf really liked it because when I got to the number 99 and thought I was done, he... <laughs> He said, well, wait a minute. Um, you haven't done double zero through 09 and you haven't done one through 35. So why don't you just start with episode 100 and do double zero and move on? Well, so on we soldiered. But the problem was is, is that I had to start doing two numbers per show in order to accomplish this in some sort of numerical order um, because otherwise... I would have, um, we, we did double zero through 09 and then, um, but the episode numbers, the way that it fell, we had to sort of do two at a time in order to catch ourselves up. So on this show, we were going to be doing six and 15. I'm going to start with a number six. And this, this is one of those numbers that, that, um, is, iconic in in multiple ways including one that 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 you can't this number made a swigo speedway history multiple times and it changed a swigo speedway history once you have to start with irish jack murphy he had the shamrock six in the dirt track days of a swigo won the first classic um, was really good in in uh, in that era and into and through the sixties. Jack um, once drove Jimmy Champagne's uh, older car, or actually, I think he drove the wedge at one point, and this was the first time of two times that Jimmy allowed somebody else to to run one of his cars that was sort of ahead of itself. Um, and Irish ran it as the six ball. Remember? Well, so when I first started going, it was 73 and Jack was uh, retired. And I don't know if that was necessarily by choice. Maybe it was. But he, he either was retired, just didn't have a ride, but he, he had stopped racing and he never raced again. Um, and I feel, I, I always felt sad about that because that was, Jack was a driver that I wish I could have seen race because he was so good. I would have liked to have seen, seen him run. 
but wasn't in the cards. Um, and so he was the first number six that would be prominent. Again, there were, may have been others in the 60s, but I don't know them. So the first six that I remember was in 1974, Baldy Baker drove the Hagen Howard number six. Now, again, what's interesting about this car, this started life as a Gibson car, and then Hagen, uh, Norm Hagen, Lyle Howard had a little team, and they they bought it, put Norm Macrath in it, had the hot pink wheels on it. This was, what, 72, was it? Yeah, 72, had a great season with Norm. He was, they had a fire, had a, the car caught fire at one point. Uh, Norm burned his hands or whatever a little bit, but and I think Irish Jack was the guy, maybe Jack drove that car while Norm was uh, being, uh, while he was healing up. Gosh, do I remember that? Somebody will quickly uh, tell me that was not true. (laughs) Or maybe they'll agree with it. I don't know. That's a random memory that I just had, but I think there may have been a week or two where where they had Murphy in the car. So um, that team split up after 72 and norm went to kenny reese for 73 had that nice little yellow uh car that that uh, norm was driving and the car ended up being renumbered 58 because norm took his number with him so they made it 58 again not sure why they chose that one but mark letcher drove it had a pretty good season in it well in 1974 um it became the number six again. I'm not sure, not sure why it kept changing or why they picked the numbers they did, but so be it. So six, it was Baldy Baker got in it and won some races and then retired. And that retirement lasted all of about two or three weeks. I think (laughs) all of a sudden the number seven appeared. Remember this, those of you who are old enough, A number seven appeared. Now, that car, as I now know, was there were two Hagen Howard cars in 72. The 40 was a former Gibson car. And then Brian Herb had built a copy of that car. And I don't know if Brian was the only one who was building it, but there was a copy build, and it was the first car that Brian Herb ever raced in 72. It was the 01. The... 40 became the fifth or became the the 40 became the 58 which became the six in 1974 that Baldy Baker drove well the 01 became the 31 of Jim Gray which became the seven in 1974 and this is what's interesting. And, and again, you got to expand a little bit because these stories are part of the lore. And again, it's kind of how things worked, right? Um, so when Baldy retired, I remember that in one of the programs, and I don't think I have that this particular one. I have several from that season, but I don't think I have this one. There were, Ivor had this long list of names 
that were potential replacements, right? There was Freddie Graves, Don McLaren. Um, I think Gibson was in there. Um, I don't even know who else. And now the one that ended up replacing him was uh, Jim Cheney. Cheney got in the six and, you know, he ran well, but, you know, in, I don't, he might've won a heat or whatever, but I, he didn't win any features as far as I know. So what happens a few weeks after Baldy retires, Baldy comes back and there's a number seven and it's red. I think Baldy gets in it, drives it for a couple of weeks and ends up back in the six and Cheney's in the seven. <laughs> That's how they finish the year. Now, I don't know if Baldy kind of went and said, look, I don't like this car as well as the six. So I want to switch, put be in the six again. I don't know how all that worked, but that's how it happened. Um, that's what happened. They finished the year that way. And then in 1975, now this is where, again, it's kind of funny because Baldy and Cheney kind of intersected a couple times here. So Cheney follows Baldy in the six, then gets, gets kicked to the seven so Baldy could get back in the six. Well, in 1975, Baldy is in the six to start the season. What car is Cheney in? Not the seven. The seven didn't appear in 1975. Jim Cheney's driving the Miles Barker number 93, which is the car that Baldy had so much success with at Oswego in, in, in 73, 72, 73, and then left that car and ended up in the six. And again, I don't know who parted ways with who. I don't know the backstory. I would love to if somebody knows it. But so here's Cheney in the 93. Well, the the 93 car, um, Baldy had left or, or they, again, they parted ways at the end of 73, Baldy and the 93 team. And 74 started Armand Holly was in the 93. Then Gary Albert got in it. And it was black. It went from that gorgeous blue color to black. Well, then in 1975, Cheney starts the year in it and it's back to blue again. <laughs> Baldy's in the six. Well, that car, the six car in 1975, it, I mean, it was okay. Not great. And Again, I'm not sure who parted ways with who, but Baldy soon was out of the six and into the 93. Again, I don't know. I would love to know like whose decision all this was. You know, I, Baldy, I always thought was a, a, a legend. And um, you, you just have to wonder if he had enough clout basically to go, you know, I want back in that car and so Cheney was out or whatever, who knows. But um Cheney ends up buying Johnny Casey's car, number eighty eight, which is a Holinsky car that was very familiar to him because it was the nineteen car that he was that he drove for a couple of years, seventy two, seventy three, and did so good with it. So he bought that and started racing that. So at the end of seventy five, they sold that ninety three that Baldy was in, and Baldy ends up um they built a rear engine car the following year. 
and campaign that for a little bit. And um, that's kind of like where Baldy went. Well, the six car, when Baldy left it in 75 to go back to the 93, they put a guy in it named Rick Rivette. I don't know Rick's background, anything about him, but um, it didn't go very well. And then they put a guy named George Boss in it. And I think George had raced Supers and Modifieds previously. Um, but again, didn't go very well. I'm not even sure they made the classic that year. Um, it, uh, it, it just didn't run good. And so that was it. Now, where the, the seven became Ralph McLaughlin's first super, uh, I don't know where the six went. I seem to think it might have been bought by Brian Morrison, and that might have been the car that Brian ran a little bit at Oswego. Um, but I'm not sure that was the car. It may have been. Jimmy Gray drove it, um, I think, once, maybe. Or maybe he didn't. I know he was supposed to. But I think that might have been the six. And I don't know where it went from there. Couldn't tell you. Now... I don't know that I would say that the the six car that Baldy drove, the Hagen Howard six, I don't know that I would call that car legendary. But it certainly won some races and was competitive and, and, and Norman Lyle were great car owners and very again loyal to, to super modified racing for a number of years. Well, the next number six that I remember, I don't recall one in nineteen seventy six. The next one I remember started the 1977 season now you're all gonna you're all gonna ask me okay so you mentioned larry trinka did was that random well yes and no okay so let's again let's let's reflect kempton dates at the end of the 76 season built a number of cars actually it built this started at the end of 74 five he built a car for scott wilson out of canada he also um sold his 75 car to doug sire out of canada now sire put warren conium in it as the 52 for 1976 and wilson that was the 27 car that scott last drove and then sold to russ gray And that started a thing because at the end of 76, Kemp built a handful of cars. Among them were a brand new car for Warren Conium for 77, which became the 46 car, the white 46, which I call the Rutledge Rocket 2, because that was Conium's tribute to Carl Rutledge. Uh... He also built a car for um, Dan Denny. He built a car, and he built a car for Dave McKnight. Now, McKnight was a gentleman out of Canada, and I'm trying to remember his racing background. I, I'm almost positive he had one, but Dave was, boy, this guy came in. 
it was, it, again, if you'll recall, it was a red number six, and the first driver was Johnny Spencer out of Canada. So Spencer and the six car, now Johnny made a few changes to it uh, to sort of suit what he thought and wanted as a driver. And that car didn't have much success with him in it. It wasn't awful, but it wasn't, it just wasn't running up front challenging for wins. And McKnight was pouring a lot of money into this. Well, Conium started the year in the 46, which was his own car. He, he had some good runs, won a feature and then flipped the car at Fulton Speedway. And I think when he did, it hurt the motor, which Doug Sire had built. So it went back to Doug, who was Conium's father-in-law, or is he, he is Conium's father-in-law. Um, uh, Doug has left us. Um, but at that time, uh, Doug was already building motors and Doug, Doug was rebuilding the motors. So the 46 was out. So, uh, while the, the 46 was on the sidelines, Dave McKnight and John Spencer parted ways and McKnight, this happened at the track, I think, because, um, the night that I believe that it happened, the 28 that kept dates, his car had problems in the practice. So I think he took out the six in the heat race. And I seem to remember that again, multi-car pile up and he ended up, um, hitting the fence. And, um, then I think it was the following week that Warren Conium got in the car for the first time. And, there became this agreement that was made that while the, while he was waiting to get his motor fixed for the 46, he would just run McKnight's, I think. And it turned out that he never left it. He ended up deciding to sell the 46, which he did to Del Meeks who made it that beautiful green number two that he flipped, which I just now realized the second time that year that that car was flipped he flipped it the classic and ended up at the end of that season. Um, that was it for him. Racing wise, I don't believe he ran it all in 78. He might have. I don't seem to recall that. But if he did, it wasn't much. And he sold the car to Joe Paino. Now that car was uh, the last car that Paino owned that he drove. And. It was the green 06. Joe ran it for, I think, two, three years and had some great classic runs with it. Had some good finishes. One, I think he won the first heat he ever raced in it. It was still the number two at that point. He had just bought it and hadn't even renumbered it. And then um, he sold it to Mike Brubaker who ran it for a couple of years. That was his first super modified. And then he sold it to Bill McDonald out of uh, Buffalo. And um, he was an ex, uh, T I think TQ midget racer. Bill made it. It was this gorgeous yellow and it was just a beautiful looking car. Beautiful yellow ran it for a year or two and then poof disappeared. 
Now, um, I give all that history because, again, theme within a theme, the, the car, the chassis that that Larry Trinka has bought is the 77 Dan Denny car that Dates built for Dan Denny, which was a twin to the 46 car that was built for Warren Conium. And it was also a twin to the six car that was built for Dave McKnight. See how we tie this up into a bow? The parts that, that Larry Trinka got were all off of the Mc, the McDonald the, the Bill McDonald car, the the which was again the forty six car originally that became the twenty that became the two that became the twenty the oh six that became the twenty four that became the fifty six that McDonald had. So here's where this goes, and and this is why I can't wait to get Larry on here and have some fun with this. There are actually, if you total this up. And I, I may, I, I think I may be missing um, at least one car that dates built for the 77 season for somebody, but I can't think who it would have been. That, the, the, that chassis that he has and the parts that he has did not come off the same dates car, but they're all in the family. They, the, the, the chassis is the one that he built for Dan Denny. The parts are off the car that was Bill McDonald's, which was originally Conium's, and then, um, and then Del Meeks, and then Paino, and then Brubaker, and then McDonald's. So basically, <laughs> what's interesting about this is that Larry, this is a blank sheet of paper because Larry, this because this isn't a specific, he's got parts from one car and a chassis from another. He can actually make this a tribute to any of those cars. And it would still be as accurate as he could make it because, of course, you know. So he's got about, uh, let's see, he's got uh, 85 Dan Denny, 46 Warren Conium, um, 2 Del Meeks, 06 Joe Paino, uh 24, Mike Brubaker, 56, Bill McDonald. As near as I can figure, he's got a choice of six paint schemes that in theory he could he could make that car and it would be accurate at least, you know, to either the parts that he has or the, the chassis. <laughs> How crazy, huh? Okay, so now let's get back to the six. Now, look. What Dave McKnight and that team did with Warren Conium driving is perhaps the most remarkable two-year run that any team has ever had in a Swiggle Speedway history. They won the Classic in 1977, first year as a team, and Conium wasn't even in the car for the whole year. He started, you know, partway into it, so maybe halfway or so into it. And they end up winning the classic when Kemp Dates ran out of fuel. They come back in 78. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where this gets interesting. They come back in 1978. 
Now, Jimmy Champagne's got the offset card. Jimmy wins 13 races. Warren Conium, zero. But you know what Conium won? The track championship. How? Jimmy broke in all the double point shows, and that team didn't miss a trick all year. I think they finished every feature in the top five, a lot of them in the top three. And Warren Conium and Dave McKnight as a team, that group of people, and there were some really smart people on that team. That was... That was a team that, to me, was as strong as the Hevron team became later in the, you know, in, in 80, 81, 82, 83, that the McKnight team and even some of the personnel, I think, were the same. Um, the McKnight team was just super strong. And that was an incredible accomplishment. So, so again, history made, Okay. By the number six, Jack Murphy makes it with winning the first classic in the Shamrock six. Now we have six making history with Dave McKnight with Conium and winning the track championship, the classic in the first two years as a team. Um, Then in 1979, I don't believe there was a six. And who would have thought after that success that Coney and McKnight wouldn't be a team anymore. Dave got out of owning a super. And Coney sat on the sidelines for most of 1979. Now, there was one week he drove, if you remember, a yellow number 54. It was a Bill Height rear engine car that was built for Bill Port out of the Midwest. Coney drove it one time in Oswego and got out of it. He just, I don't think he saw the potential in it or whatever, for whatever reason, just didn't feel like it had what he wanted. And um, to be fair, he wasn't very competitive the one night he drove it. Beautiful yellow, though. Gosh, some of those yellow cars were great Um, back in the day. And then for Classic Weekend, we all remember this. Jimmy Champagne named Warren Conium to drive the rear engine car that he had built and won one race with in 79. He decided to drive his offset. What number did they make the car? The six ball. So here comes the number six again. That that number changed Oswego Speedway history. That drive in the Classic where Warren Conium sat second to Jimmy until Jimmy, it was actually Johnny Spencer, ironically enough, who spun out as the two leaders were coming up on him, the two eight balls split Spencer. Jimmy went low and just caught, uh, I think with the right front, the the 23 of Spencer, and it put Jimmy out of the race. Conium went high and went around him and missed him. Conium inherits the lead. Lead still is pit stop. Comes out a lap down because um, I think a push truck might have run over him or something 
there was something with a push truck that I think they they think may have ruptured the the fuel tank or whatever. But I remember um, the stop was botched somehow, and he lost a lap in the pits. He comes out a lap down, totally unleashes that car, and just came around, unlapped himself, then took the lead again. Went by Chuck Siprich. We're seeing a lot of common themes in the show, right? Um, went by Chuck Siprich to take the lead, and um was on his way to winning the race and then car developed an oil leak and they black flagged him and banned all rear engine cars at the end of that year now you know i still always say nolan swift made up two laps gary in 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 the 71 classic gary reichert made up two laps in the 73 modified 200 i don't recall either of those cars being banned but anyway, we move on. So that six changed Oswego Speedway history again. Okay, it the, the six set a record in 77 and 78. Remember, we're just talking the number. Set a, it, it won the first classic in 57, set a record in 77, 78, the best two-year run a team may have ever had in Speedway history, turned around in 1979 and changed the course of history because it was on the rear engine car that got rear engine cars banned okay conium by the way as of that moment had been a part of the last three okay he he was with mcknight when he when they won the track championship of classic so he part of that history that they set and then um he was the one that changed the course of history <laughs> with a six ball in 79 in the classic got rear engines banned all right now we move on to 1980. Jimmy Champagne is no longer a full-time racer. What happens? Warren Conium teams up with Clyde Booth. Out of New England, Clyde's cars were always 9 or 09, depending on, again, if somebody else already had a 9. When they came to the Classic, they were 09 because Steve Joy was 9. Well, when Conium got in it, they changed the number six. <laughs> what does Conium do? Wins nine races and another track championship. More history. This number's on a roll, man. Him and Clyde build a new car, 481. Didn't run quite as well. I think he did win a couple races, but not quite the success. And then... In 1982, here we go again. Clyde Booth teams up with Jimmy Champagne. Again, Conium and Champagne intersecting. Clyde Booth teams up with Jimmy Champagne. They build a new car. It's now the 89, Clyde's original number, and Jimmy's eight. Maroon and green. Um, and again, uh, another little intersection in the sh this current show. That's the car. <laughs> that I mentioned that Jim and Scott Martell had just restored. Well, Warren Conium makes a call to Doug Duncan, and all of a sudden we have a new team and a new car and a number six. Conium and Duncan have two really good years together. Um, darn near winning the 83 Classic. But Eddie Bellinger got through the hole first. <laughs> and... Uh, just a great team. Then the beginning of 84, I think Duncan was no longer in the picture, but 
and I'm not sure if Duncan built the copy or if um, other people built it, but somebody built a copy of that car that Coney was driving for Duncan, and it was built for Kenny Williamson. And some it's in in, in the supers were still racing down in Florida during speed weeks back then. Um, and Conium and Kenny's dad made some kind of a, an agreement. And I never quite knew if it was that Garnett bought the six from Conium. I think that's what it was. Um, and Conium would drive it. He would field it for Conium provided that Conium mentored his kid. And I think that's how that went. And so Kenny, Kenny started racing. It was, that car was 66. Conium still had the six and that lasted through the end of the 84 season. Then that car, I believe was sold to Bruce Waddell who made it the 89, which then became the Todd Stoll first 89. Okay, so so Conium, meanwhile, went back to Clyde, but by then they were running as 99. So the now the next number six, and this is where this is where I'm gonna kind of go off the rails here with the six, because um I want to say there was a car six out of New England that, and I think the guy's name was Dave Snap. I don't know why I remember a Dave Snap, but I think there was a number six. And I think it was Dave Snap. I want to say Artie Russo, but I think Artie was 10. I think Dave Snap drove a number six. Um, but I don't know exactly when in the timeline that would have fit. I seem to recall that though, a black six with Dave snap in it. Um, but let's see the, the it's gosh, I feel like I'm missing such an obvious six. <laughs> so after, uh, let's see, after Coney and went back to Clyde, the next number six I have memory of was a car that was owned by, um, I assume a husband and wife, Alan Janet Bush. Now, the backstory there would have been that Mike Rizzo had run his final race races. I think there were, I think he ran more than once. He might not have for Alan Janet Bush, who I think were involved in the car at the time. I think it was number 34 for Rizzo and Rizzo got out and Mike Reuter got in. Um, and then, um, the car, then there was a car numbered six, and I think that Mike Reuter was the first driver of that car. And I think that was still Alan Janet Bush, if I'm not mistaken. And then at some point, it became Dave McKnight Jr. And that was, um, now that I think would have been, geez, I even think that was into the 90s. No, it wasn't. It was later 80s. I think, was it? 
I think it was maybe 88, 87, 88. Um, yeah. And Dave had some good runs in that car. And that was what kind of launched his career was, was being in that car. I think he drove for Ernie and Bob June first, but, um, but I think that car was the car that he, that really kind of made started to get everybody to notice Dave Jr. And of course he's still racing with Gary Morton, um, even today. So, and still running really well. So, um, gosh, where, um, so we're, see, we're at the end of the, I think the end of the eighties with McKnight. I don't know how long that went. Where, where did we go with a six after that? Boy, this is where somebody's going to get me good. Cause my, I have so much easier a time remembering long, long term than like the shorter 90 into 90 plus. I, I just like mid to late eighties is where I start losing details and that's life in general. It's not just racing, but, um, I can't think. Uh, I know there was at least, oh, oh, how could I forget this? Um, so I was trying to think, I thought I, um, no, that wasn't a six though. The next six that I remember would have been 1995. Now this is when, and I, and again, I've, I've been, I'm, I'm trying in my mind to put another six in between the Alan Janet Bush car and, and this car I'm going to talk about. I don't think there was. Or maybe it was Snap. Um, and and I don't think Dave was a regular. I think he would just come in for like classic or maybe specials or whatever. If that, if I even remember that right. Well, 1995. A car shows up. Once again, <laughs> numbered six, owned by Clyde Booth. Now, by now, Warren Conium's been retired for a while. Who is the driver of this car? Well, it showed up for a test session with Steve Joya behind the wheel. And now why Steve didn't get to race it, I don't know. I don't know what the discussion was, if Steve didn't want to or whatever. But Pat Abel was the first guy that got the shot. It was a red number six. And this was yet another time when the six changed Oswego Speedway history because the minute that car hit the racetrack and was allowed to compete for the first time, it basically obsoleted everything else that, that, that a super modified was at that point, everything else in the pit area was B class. Now it took Clyde a little while to dial it in, but this was an all arrow car. It was a completely different animal. This was F1 compared to everything else that was running. And once Clyde got that car where it needed to be, it, that was it. Nothing else could run with it. Um, it dominated when it finished, it dominated and it never ran. I don't believe it ever ran a full season. So that car was just completely dominant. And that again, obsoleted everything that was in the pit area from the time it, it, it didn't do it immediately, but it, it eventually changed what super modifieds were. And I don't recall another number six, um, that 
that uh, ran at Oswego after the Booth car. I don't think there's been a six in recent years, as near as I can remember, and somebody's probably going to hang me with that. Um, <laughs> but um, that number's got a rich history, and we spent a lot of time on that because it deserved it. That's why I said this show's going to be a marathon. Um, so I hope you guys... <laughs> Hope you guys are, you, you certainly can pause anytime and just come back to it and listen to it in stages. Um, in, in the interest of time, we're going to move right on to the number 15. The, the number 15 in Oswego Speedway history, I believe, belongs to Herm Graf. Have there been other 15s? Yeah, but Herm Graf, as a car owner, was at Oswego Speedway for... Gosh, probably the better part of 20 years or close to it. Um, and I know that back in the 60s, he had a couple drivers. I think Mark Letcher drove what was the Otisco bomb back in the 60s. Um, I think Sammy Carista might have driven it a time or two, but I could be making that up. <laughs> um, but um, the the and I don't know who was in in a graph car uh, in the earlier 70s until 1973 when I started, Blake Carnahan was driving. Blake was a a driver who I think was fairly new to racing or maybe had raced a little bit at like Fulton or whatever and then came to Oswego, got in the Super and was still running his own modified too. And, and I think at the end of that year, he retired. So he didn't stay around too long. I don't think he was that old when he quit. So... Again, I don't remember much about 74 uh, and the C-15. I, I, I imagine um, I seem to, to remember Bruce Kraft running it a little bit, and I know Rex Kenny did, but I don't think I don't think Kenny got in it until 75, and he may actually have been in it. It may have actually been him that ended up replacing uh, Chuck Siprich in it. We won't. We already talked about Chuck earlier in the show, so we won't spend any time on that here in this segment. Um I will carry on with drivers of the 15 and Hermie Graf again. And one of those car owners, it just, it was a rotating seat and he gave a lot of drivers um, their first shot at a super, including some veterans, Larry Nye, who had driven modifieds forever. Um, Larry got into it and had a couple different uh, opportunities with it. Um, I remember after, again, I think Kenny Rex, Kenny might've followed Siprich in it. Um, I do think George Ely drove it a little bit, but I think maybe Kenny drove it. And then I think in 76, I think Kenny might've driven it some more. Um, and then I remember at some point in that period, Mark Letcher drove the car. Um, and I think he had been, uh, I think he'd been out of, He'd been not of his own accord, I'm sure, but I don't think he'd had a ride for a bit, and I think he came back in that car. And he had a couple of pretty good runs with it. And um, let's see, who else? We had Letcher. And again, I know Larry Nye. Um, and I don't know if maybe there may have been one or two others that drove that particular car. Ron McLeod, I think, drove it a little bit. Where did... 
you think? Um, I think at the end of somewhere um, 70, I don't know if anybody was, I don't know if Herm ran much in the 79 season. Um, and I don't know where that car went. I don't know if he sold it to somebody, but I don't recall it ever coming back with somebody else in it after Herm. So, uh, owned it. So I, I don't know if it got cut up or what, but there became a new 15 for 1980 and the bounty hunter was replaced by the first offset graph car. And that was, um, at least partially built by Jim Muldoon and Muldoon drove the car in 1980, pretty yellow car. Um, pretty decent car too um jim had some top tens certainly looked respectable um again i'm not sure there was ever a huge motor in any of the graph cars which a lot of that was a big deal back in the 70s i feel like because you know none of the cars really handled beautifully but but um i feel like the ones that did most of the winning all have pretty big motors and not everybody could afford all that horsepower so um Jim drove the car. Muldoon drove the car in 1980. And notable was that I think that was the year, because uh, he only drove it the one year. Um, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy had an accident in the garage, and I think it was uh, during Classic Week, pretty sure. He had a tire explode, and it and it hurt him. And he was not able to race the classic that year. He called Kempton dates. And I believe that Kempton practiced with the car on classic Friday. And for whatever reason decided, or I guess it would have been Kemp's decision that he just didn't want to drive it. So Dave Morton drove it for the, for the weekend, I believe. So then after that, in, in um, 81, Ronnie Wallace, and again, this wasn't full season, I don't think, but Ronnie ended up in it. I think Ronnie had had, because had, Ronnie had a couple of years in that period where there were about three cars that he just destroyed. And again, not of Ronnie's own fault. He would be leading a feature and some part would break and, he, and it would just send him into the wall. Poor guy had so much bad luck. Um, and, and boy, those cars were, they were all show cars and they were beautiful. So Ronnie, um, Ronnie ended up in the graph car and they both ran. It was the last classic that either of them ran. And I think if I remember right, I think Ronnie started somewhere in the mid twenties, like maybe 24th, 23rd, 24th, and he finished 13th. And that was a good run for that car in the classic. And it was, again, it was the last one either graph or Wallace were a part of. Um, and then, um, I think the next guy to drive the 15 was actually Ronnie Wallace Jr. for a minute or two. And then, um, he didn't last too long. Cause I think he realized that it just wasn't something he wanted to do. So, um, I think AJ Michaels ended up, that was his first super modified ride. And AJ definitely had some impressive runs in it. Um, and again, and, and it was good enough for him to make a name for himself. And I think when, when he moved on, I think it was Ron Gapsky. And that was, I think Ron was the last driver of that 
of of Groff's car, and I and it and it became white. And I don't know if he had bought it from Graf or if maybe Graf owned it when he started and then he bought it or whatever, but it became a white car. And, um, and, and I don't know what, again, I don't know what happened to it. I don't know where it went. So if anybody has that answer, they can, you know, let us know. But, um, so much of, of, Again, so many different drivers, and I'm sure there's a few that got into the car at one point that I don't remember, but um, that's why I love that era. Again, it was, it you know, that was fun, and, and the 16 for Steve Miller was the same, um, which we'll get to on the next show. Um, that'll be a long one, too, because Steve had a long list of drivers, and I know I'm not going to get them all, because uh, <laughs> his list was even longer than Herm's. Um but it was it was uh just great and and then the the other 15 that comes to mind for me and this would have been much much later again um gosh did we have any i don't know that 15 was a tremendously popular number i i see again i seem to remember a car from new england that was 15 it was black who would have been in it? What was who would have driven it? Oh gosh, um, was it an old booth car? One of the old booth cars? Oh man, um, I'm I'm gonna somebody somebody can if somebody remembers this, um, I can almost picture the car. I'm sure I'm sure I remember this. Again, I do all this out of my head, so some some days are better than others. Um, Jim Lowry, right? Was it Lowry? Was he 15? Jim Lowry, I think. Um, and then I remember in the mid-2s, mid-2000s, uh, at Le Prade, of course, had built an offset, uh, an aero car, his attempted an aero car, for Doug Haveron, which was a one and Doug had a very bad wreck with it in a, in a, I think it was in a practice session, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and hurt his back. And, and so Bentley drove the car a little bit and then they kind of gave up on that car. And, um, well, Proud went out and bought a booth car and that was a blue number 15 and Bentley drove it. And I think Dave Schulich Jr. Drove it for a bit and that was it. Um, and I, again, um, and then um, the next 15 I remember is Mike Muldoon, Jr., Mike Jr., Michael, um, ran his 15, um, and, uh, and, and that's where we are with the 15. I don't think I missed any, but I may have. Um, but, uh, yeah, just... Uh, no, I think Lowry was 07 now that I'm thinking about it. But I, I may be, I may be, I just think, I, I feel like I remember a black number 15 from somewhere um, that would have been in that 90s period, um, late 80s, 90s period. Um, but Lowry might have been 07. I don't, I don't remember. Anyway, um, we'll leave it there. So if you've got a 6 or a 15 that I didn't mention, 
feel free to uh, drop it in the comments. And if uh, you can think of a driver for Hermie that I didn't mention, uh, or you can fill in any of Hermie's 60s history, please feel free to do that. Um, just a, a pair of really cool numbers to talk about, for sure. Um, okay, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to wrap up this episode of the Inside Groove. Um, gosh, I I hope, I pray that maybe we won't we, we will have the Mike Murphy tribute coming up, um, and I, I hope we don't have to do any more for a while. Golly, we're just getting ready to start the season. Um, it's I want to focus on good stuff, right? So, um, yeah, lots of excitement. The Isma show coming up on the 13th, 4,000 to win, I think, at Jennerstown. So hopefully we get a nice stout field for that. Um, but uh, that'll wrap it up for this show. Again, I want to thank all of our sponsors, Jeff West and uh, IPC Indy. Of course, Jeff uh, still has the super and told me just here recently, we'll get Jeff on a future show too. Jeff is uh, going to race the car at least once or twice this year. Um, and of course, Rich Worth and the folks from JNS Paving, the Beethoven of Blacktop. And uh, can't forget uh, Sean Cathcart and uh, the folks at both LaGroff's Pub and Skip's Fish Fry, now a mobile truck. And of course, they still have the concession at the Speedway. Um, thank you so much for listening. And please support those sponsors. If you need something that they offer, if you're hungry, go to LaGroff's or uh, skips mobile truck and we'll try and keep up to date uh, as much as Sean will give me the, the list of uh, where that truck's going to be. We'll try and pass those things along to you throughout the year. Um, and if you need blacktop, of course, call rich worth. And if you need anything made, Jeff West is your guy that uh, IPC Indy can do it all. So uh, that's it. Have a great week and, um, Look forward to talking to you for episode 116. We will do the number seven and the number 16. So that show will probably be a marathon too. Plus we're going to have Larry Trinka. Um, and uh, so uh, we're, we're going to, we, we've been trying to keep these main shows under an hour. I think we missed on this one by a mile. <laughs> I think we're probably going to miss on the next one too. So uh, bear with us folks, but we hope you enjoy them. And um, again, have a blessed week, everybody. I'm Tom Baker. Thanks for listening. So long. You've been listening to Inside Groove, powered by IPC Indy, creating performance parts and solutions for the automotive, aerospace, and communications industries. Find them on the web at www.ipcindy.com. Inside Groove is a Race Chaser Media production. For more exciting and passionate motorsport content, follow Race Chaser Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and visit racechasermedia.com. The opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, affiliates, or marketing partners of Race Chaser Media. No part of this show may be reproduced in any manner without the expressed written consent of Race Chaser Media. Thank you for listening.